Kings uh, again this morning, uh, and I am glad to uh, have some help in the pulpit this summer with Nate and Chris and Rome, but I am really glad to be in the pulpit this morning. Um, All right, so have you ever purchased some sort of electronic device, no matter what it is, and you get it all set up, you follow the instructions, you've gotten it all set up, and it just doesn't work. And so you get the instructions out, and you call the help number, and what's the first thing they ask you? Is it plugged in? And you're like, well, all right, that's a little insulting, and no one needs to raise their hand here, but I'm guessing some of you either have admitted you forgot to plug it in, or lied about it and kept going and you know stayed on the line for quite some time, or just simply hung up because it was too embarrassing because you realized it wasn't plugged in. Why do they ask that first? Well, it seems to be a bit insulting, but sometimes it's because the most obvious solution to the problem is often ignored because it's the most obvious solution to the problem. It's basic, and we seek to move on too quickly from it. Over the next couple of uh, times we're in the book of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at some practical instructions. Paul's going to move into some practical instructions in what it means to be holy as God's people. And as we walk into practical discussions of what it means to be holy, uh, it's going to illuminate for us some errors that we approach or some errors that we commit as we approach the topic of holiness. One of these errors is like forgetting to turn on the electronic device. We attempt to pursue holiness with dead hearts, either because we have not yet encountered the grace of God in Jesus, or because we have forgotten that grace and attempt to do the Christian life in our own power. This is why so many people look at Christianity as a set of judgmental rules, looking only at the instructions while missing maybe the most obvious part, the power. Where does the power come from for holiness? The other error that we're going to illuminate is the belief that holiness is merely the avoidance of wrongdoing. That's like getting the electronic device, whatever it is, set up, working, plugged in, actually moving and working, but then not ever using it. Just trying to keep it clean and not broken. Just setting it there and make sure the dust doesn't get on it, but never actually using it. This is why so many people look at Christianity as a restrictive, joy-sucking religion with a killjoy God of anger and wrath. But again, that misses the point. It misses the purpose of God's grace and his people which is to love him and to love neighbor. Holiness is not just the avoidance of sinful things, of wrongdoing, but uh, the pursuit of something more glorious. We need to keep these two errors in mind, lest we fall into them ourselves. And we must continually ask ourselves and each other if we are really connected to the power of God before seeking to live out the commands of holiness. So let's move to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 to start. 
Paul says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives them because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful passions or lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now, when he says, live no longer as the Gentiles do, you need to remember what we've learned from Ephesians so far, that this is a primarily Gentile congregation with some Jewish mixture as well. Remember, the story of the New Testament speaks of Jews, God's chosen people, and Gentiles, everyone else. But the glory of the New Covenant is that everyone else gets to come in and does not have to become culturally Jewish to be a part of the people of God. Gentiles are allowed in. And so when he says, live no longer as the Gentiles do, what he really means, we can sort of translate that to us, is live no longer like you used to before you were a Christian. Right? That's what he's focusing on here. He's not saying, lay aside all the cultural aspects of being Gentile and become Jewish. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, ignore your culture, ignore your heritage, your origin, uh, any of those things. No, he's actually said to bring those things, right? That the glory of the gospel is Jew and Gentile coming together at the foot of the cross. You are to bring that to you, to, uh, to uh, the church. However, there are definitely things before you become a Christian that you've got to leave behind. There are different ways of living. And what he's saying is, now that this has happened, you have to stop living like you used to live. Remember, when we were in the book of Acts, we described, uh, the book of Acts describes Christianity as the way. Right? That's what it was called, the way. Because it was a way of life, not simply something that you hold on to on Sunday morning and then the rest of the week doesn't matter. It's a way of life. It's a a pattern of acting. And so when he says, you've now been transformed, he says, you can't live like you used to. You're different. He goes on to say, But that isn't what you learned about Christ. That isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. That's not what you learned about Christ. Well, Paul has been telling them what they did learn about Christ. What is it that they learned about Christ? Well, throughout this this book, he has said that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, and yet God came and made you alive because of Jesus. Because Jesus took upon himself Your sin, your wrongdoing, your ways of breaking God's law in thought, word, and deed, in the things that you do and the things that you don't do, all of that laid upon Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus endured that on the cross and then forgives you if you are in him. 
you seek for mercy, He gives mercy. And He has granted you now His righteousness. And He's done all that to purchase you into a family. A family, the church. This diverse group of people from Jew and Gentile alike coming together at the foot of the cross. This is what we've learned about Christ. And so he says, if that's true, then you need to put off this old nature. You were dead in your sins. Put that dead man to death. Let him lay dead and put on your new nature in Christ. Put on your new nature in Christ. This is really uh, the promise that God had given all throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, it says this. The prophet Ezekiel says, Then I will, the, the Lord speaking, says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. This is the promise of God in the gospel. It's realized in the gospel that you get God's spirit in you. That God takes away your dead hearts and gives you a new heart so that you can respond to the things of God. This is what Paul is saying. The reason you leave behind the way you were living is because Jesus has done something to you. That's the only reason you leave behind what you used to do. Because Jesus has done something to you. Because you are now united with Christ. You're united with Jesus. Union with Christ by the Spirit of God to be conformed to the standard of God. You see how this works? You are now united with Jesus so that you can actually obey in holiness. Right? What does he say? I will put my Spirit in you so that you will obey my regulations. What was our call to worship this morning? Your law has been written on my heart. How does that happen? Only because Jesus comes to dwell in you by the Spirit of God. Union with Christ is the only hope for the holiness required by the Lord. Uh, Walter Marshall in his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, I'm going to quote this book a couple of times. I forgot to grab it out of my uh, bag to show you. If I can accomplish anything by this sermon, if I can urge you to read one book this next year, it would be this. The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification by Walter Marshall is easily the most influential book I've ever read, apart from the Scriptures. But it has transformed, and I go back to it all the time. I took our staff through it. It's a book that I always go back to because it's transformed the way I think about holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Marshall says this, The key to holy living is the gospel's truth of union with Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and Christ himself is in you. You are in him by a close union so that, in fact, you are one spirit with Christ. Now, union with Christ is this mysterious doctrine. But what have we been doing in this book already, right? 
Throughout the book of Ephesians, we've been talking about the Trinity, the way in which the Trinity works. Is the Trinity not a mysterious doctrine? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in union and yet distinctive in person. Distinctive persons, but together in one Godhead. Our union with Christ is similar in the sense that we are united with Christ and yet we remain distinctive. You don't become Jesus. You don't become God. But you are united with Christ. We're going to see here in uh, another chapter, Paul is going to talk about marriage And he's going to talk about the union between husband and wife. And he's going to relate it to the union between Christ and the church. Actually, what he's going to do is say, the better thing is union with Christ and the church. And by the way, here's some instructions on marriage. But let me tell you, I'm really excited about this union between Jesus and his church. And it's like the union of a husband and wife. You remain distinctive people, and yet you are also one one new entity. But what does it mean when you do get married? If your spouse has debt, you now have debt. What does it mean if your spouse has wealth? Well, you now have wealth. Our union with Christ is similar. We come with lots of spiritual debt, and Jesus takes it as his own and bears it on the cross. And he comes with lots of holiness and righteousness. And guess what you get? His holiness, and righteousness. God sees you as he sees his beloved son, Jesus. You have his perfect righteousness. His perfect record is yours by your union with Christ. It's yours. It's freely given. And you can have it. You can have it. This union with Christ is the power source it's like plugging in the electronic device. The union, our union with Christ is the power source to holy living. It is the only hope we have for holy living. Marshall goes on to say, when God sanctifies you or makes you holy, right? When God sanctifies you, he, gives, he does more than just give you the natural holiness that Adam first had in the Garden of Eden. See, this is where I think we get mistaken a lot. When we understand the gospel, when, when Paul says, don't live like you used to live, what we hear him say is, I'm forgiven of everything I've done in the past, and now I've got to live right. Right? Every sin I've ever done is, is erased, and now I've got to live right. And I'm like Adam in the garden. I get a, a, a way to try to be holy. I get a fresh start. But that's not the gospel. You get more than a fresh start. What does he say? When God sanctifies you, he uses his almighty power to give life to those who are dead in sin. In order to live a life of holiness, you need God's almighty power. You now live by a higher principle of life than was given to Adam at first. You live by Christ and his spirit living and acting in you. You're not starting with a blank slate. You're starting with Jesus' righteousness. It's yours in Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, if you have said, I am a sinner in need of saving, I need your mercy, and you are banking on Jesus and His work on the cross alone, you have His perfect holiness credited to you. 
and available to you to live into because he lives in you through the Spirit of God. This is, this is where we make so many mistakes in holy living. Because we attempt, we think, okay, God forgave me, and now I have to figure out how to do this right. You know, I was really terrible with certain habits before, and now I have to figure out how to stop all those things and move forward in a better way. And we try to do it disconnected from the power source for holiness. And we try and do it in our own strength. So what does it mean to live out our union with Christ? Well, first and foremost, we have to know the truth of the gospel. We have to know this truth of the gospel. We have to remind ourselves of it over and over again. You can't get one page in the scriptures without seeing the gospel truth that Jesus forgives sinners like you and me. It's everywhere. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. It is everywhere. Why is it everywhere? Because like when you call the helpline to figure out the electronic device, and they say, did you plug it in? It's what the Lord is saying over and over and over again. God, I need help. Did you plug it in? I'm right here. I'm right here. I'm with you. We need to remind ourselves over and over again. You never move on from the gospel. We never move on from this truth that the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. That means that to pursue holiness, we need to know the deep love of God. What did Paul pray about earlier, right? A couple of weeks ago when I was preaching here, we were talking about God's love for us and Paul praying that you would know the power of God and that you would know the depth and the height and the width and the length of God's love for you. You know, sometimes we think the way towards holiness, to inspire holiness, we need to talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God. Well, the scriptures tell us about the wrath and anger of God, no doubt. But for the Christian, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans. For the Christian, we need to know that God loves us fully and that he has deep, intense love for his church. We're not going to scare ourselves into holiness. That's not the point. We need to know the deep love of God. We need to have a tender heart by the Spirit of God, as Ezekiel said. Well, that means having a tender heart doesn't mean that we are having a perfect heart. It means having a repentant heart. Having a heart that confesses our sins to the Lord and to one another. And then we need to be conformed to the righteousness of Jesus by the Spirit of God. I've talked about this before, but when we think about holiness and we think about the commands that God gives us in the Scriptures... We need to remember the standard to which we are trying to hold ourselves. It's impossible. And that's the point. As soon as you start trying to do this work on your own, you know what you do? You lower the standard. Because you make it something that you can attain. So just, just don't do these things, right? As long as I don't drink and do drugs and smoke and have sex, I'm good. Look at that. I'm great. 
in fact. But doesn't Jesus call us to a lot more than that? He actually calls us to to love enemy. That attitude typically makes us hate a lot of people and make a lot of enemies. He calls us to love God and love neighbor. You know, we as a church, we hold to some doctrinal statements like we read earlier, the Apostles' Creed, but also the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms. The shorter one was designed to be for children, but it's pretty thick. <laughs> so, you know, um, they, they, uh, they, they expect it a lot. But the larger one, it's real thick. But the larger catechism has one of my favorite expositions on the law of God. If you're going to read anything else besides Walter Marshall's book, read the larger catechism on the law of God. I think it's like question, starts at question 100 or so. And it walks through... And if you remember when, I was, when we were preaching through Exodus, we were talking about the law of God. And one of the things that the Westminster Standards do in talking about the law, it says, it takes every commandment and it says, what does this commandment require of us? And then what does it prohibit? Starts with require and then goes to prohibit. The commandments are all written as prohibits, right? Thou shalt not, right? But they start with what does it require? Because every prohibition has a requirement also. It's not just like, hey, by the way, I didn't murder anyone this week. Sweet, I'm doing good. Actually, in its exposition, what it says is, we actually have to protect and care for life that is unjustly taken. We actually have to go out of our way to love neighbor positively, not just not kill them, right? That's actually a much higher standard. It's the standard of Jesus. Jesus didn't just like not commit sins against the Ten Commandments. He actually did what they are supposed to do. Love neighbor. So here's what happens is we stop seeing the standard as Jesus because we know that that's impossible. And so we make the standard each other. Right? It's like fleeing from a a wild animal. I don't have to be faster than the animal. I just have to be faster than you. Right? That's what we think about holiness. I don't have to be holy. I just have to be holier than, than you guys. That's not how it works. Our standard is Jesus. And here's why that's good news. Jesus fulfills the standard for you. And then by your union with him, you get him by his spirit in you, animating your holy life towards that standard. You see how that works? It's really, really important that we stop trying to compare ourselves to one another because we will endlessly fall into shaming ourselves that we're not holy enough. Of course you're not holy enough. But Jesus loves you and has given his spirit to live in you so that you will be made holy like him. And in Corinthians... Paul says the way in which that's done is by beholding Jesus. Worshiping him. When we worship him, we become like him. That's how it works. Whatever you follow and worship, you will become like. And that's why we follow and worship Jesus. And so that's what it means when Paul says to put off the old man and to put on the new man. 
It's not just this putting off of not doing these certain things, but it's also a putting on of righteousness. Something brand new that's of Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul goes in the rest of this section. He gives sort of the practical outflow of this. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. You see how that works? Stop telling lies. He doesn't stop there. Tell your neighbors the truth, right? There's the positive aspect to this. For we are all parts of the same body. Within the church, we ought not to lie to one another. We're all part of the same body. We are in communion with one another. We can't lie to each other. We must tell the truth. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Look at that. It's not just, hey, stop doing bad things. I mean, so many people, right, misunderstand Christianity that is simply trying to control people to stop doing bad things. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying there's a better way to live. Stop stealing. Work hard and then give generously. Right? Work hard and then give generously to others in need. This is the way the gospel works. And it's only going to work by the Spirit of God and the power of God. It's not possible apart from that. You can't go from thieving to giving generously apart from the Spirit of God at work. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Again, not just, hey, stop talking bad. Actually, bring life to people with your words. Live that out. Live out your union with Christ. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is not a mystical power force, but a person in the Godhead who lives in you if you are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit, as a person, can be grieved by the way you live. Grieved. Now, God loves you. Doesn't take away his love. Just like a parent with a child who continually disobeys in a way that harms them, we still love them, but we are grieved because they continue to do harm to themselves. It's the way the Holy Spirit is with you. You can grieve his heart by the way that you live. And why would you not do that? Because he has marked you as his own. The God of the universe who flung the stars into their place and knows them by name has marked you as his own. He has marked you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. See what he said here? He didn't say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit lest you be thrown into hell. No, he said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he sealed you for the day of redemption. He has guaranteed that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Because you are so sure that God has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future in Jesus, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
See, God's way of motivating is not like, be careful or I'll throw you into hell. His way of motivating is, I have done everything necessary for you to be saved. Come. Listen to me. Come be with me. Even when you run away, come back. Come back to me because I love you. And therefore, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all, uh, as well as all types of evil behavior. This is where Paul slips into parent mode. Like, you know, you, you did this wrong and this wrong, and anything else you did wrong, watch out for, all right? Because, you know, there's more, but I can't, I can't say all of it. All types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. This is the glory of the living out our union with Christ. And the way that we do that is by confessing our sins. Being honest about the ways in which we're not doing it. Being honest about the ways in which we don't live up to the standard of God in Christ. And then running to Christ to be forgiven and running to the virtue that Christ displays. If we are to live out our union with Christ, we must not make our lives about stopping doing bad things. Right? Because it's not going to work. But about putting to death our old nature through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and our union with him and living into our new nature. Now, that sounds awesome. But what if I stink at it? Well, Walter Marshall has more to tell us. Now, you might be asking, if I have this wonderful new nature, why do I still struggle with sin? You may wonder if you are even a Christian. Do not be discouraged by your continuing struggle against sin. Even though you are a new creation in Christ, and you now serve the law of God with your mind, you will still feel the pull of the flesh. Born-again believers serve the law of God with their mind, yet in their flesh they serve the law of sin, Romans 7.25. As far as the flesh remains in them, the flesh lusts against the spirit, Galatians 5.17. Your flesh remains dead because of sin, even while your spirit is alive because of righteousness, Romans 8.10. The flesh will only be totally destroyed when you die. In this life, you will never become perfect in holiness and happiness in Christ. This is the tension of the New Testament. The tension that we saw all throughout the book of Acts of the already and not yet. You are already a new creation in Christ. You already have God's Spirit living in you. You already have been perfected in Him for all eternity. He has seated you in the heavenly places with, alongside the Father. You are there. And yet, we're not yet there. We still struggle against sin. And you know this tension, right? It's something that you can't really describe in words, but you know the tension of wanting to obey God and loving Him and having moments in which you are like, Jesus is all there is. And the very next moment thinking, yeah, there's a lot more. I kind of want to do this other stuff, right? 
that tension will only be solved when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Because guess what? This whole thing, as, if, as Paul has been saying throughout Ephesians, is a gift of God. It's a gift. This whole thing is his idea and his doing, not yours. And so we will receive, we will receive this perfect holiness when we get to glory. When Jesus returns and brings us to his home. So don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Continue in your struggle against sin because the Holy Spirit is in you and God loves you. So what should this create for us? We're going to see some more practical applications as we continue to move into uh, the, the rest of this chapter. But what it should create for us is us being a humble church. We need to be honest about our past and present struggles, that we are not perfect Honest about our present struggles with the old man and humble also to the fact that the power for holiness doesn't come from us. You are no better than your neighbor because your sin struggle looks different than theirs. Or because you've grown a little bit in your holiness. Because guess what? You didn't produce that. It was a gift. You didn't do it. It was Jesus working in you. It also means that we should be a holy church, right? We have said this before here, but, but we are not a church that exists to be a museum for the righteous, where you come in and look at all the pretty things. We're a hospital for sinners. And yet I've said this before also. If you go into the hospital with a broken arm and you leave the hospital with a broken arm, it's a pretty terrible hospital, right? Saying we're a hospital for sinners doesn't mean that we're not also interested in holiness, Sinners need to be healed. We need to grow in holiness. We need to be honest about that. We need to talk about the standards of Jesus and challenge each other to grow. All of that is true. And we do so by the grace of God. And then finally, we need to be an active church. Seeking positive virtue in Christ, not just avoiding sin. Sin avoidance is not holiness. Loving God and loving neighbor in private and public through our union with Christ by the power of the Spirit is holiness. We can't just say, well, at least I'm not like those sinners over there. Good. Maybe. But you aren't like Jesus either. So you're not in a better situation, right? You need grace just like they do. And then you need that grace to transform you so that you are active in loving God and loving neighbor. Proactive love for God and neighbor. But being a humble church, a holy church, and an active church will only come when we're connected to the power source. So are you living out of your union with Christ by the Spirit of God to be conformed to the standard of God? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We are unable to do this, as we have admitted. We need you to come by your power to grant to us your grace so that we can be conformed to your image, Jesus. 
God, would you come and encourage us? If we're discouraged in our walk, in our pursuit of holiness, would you encourage us? If we're discouraged in our fight against sin, would you encourage us? And would you draw us to yourself by your love, by your tender mercy towards us? God, would you be gracious in these ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.